This is the story of Diamonds and Pearls, a new season of the Prince podcast produced in collaboration with NPG Records, Paisley Park Enterprises, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Records. Welcome back. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson, and this is Push from Prince and the New Power Generation's Diamonds and Pearls. In our first episode, we met several of the core musicians who appear on the album alongside Prince. Today, we're going to get to know Tony Mosley, heard rapping on this track, along with his fellow dancing dynamos, Damon Dixon and Kirk Johnson. In addition to acting as Prince's onstage foils in this era, Tony Damon and Kirk's involvement further roots the MPG in Prince's hometown. They all grew up alongside Prince, Sonny T, and other Minneapolis sound luminaries like Terry Lewis, Jerome Benton, Morris Day, and Andre Simone in the relatively small, tight-knit community of North Minneapolis in the 70s. Speaking to Rolling Stone in 1990, Prince said, People talk about Minneapolis sound or Minneapolis scene, but they don't really know what the place looks like or means. I want it to mean something. And after talking to all of these talented Northsiders, I've come to the conclusion that you can't fully understand what Prince was doing with his new power generation without understanding the vibrant Black community that shaped him when he and his peers were just teenagers. That's that Northside swagger. Don't let it fool you. This is Tony Mosley, who Prince called Tony M. So grew up in North Minneapolis. Grew up watching uh, Prince and them doing the Battle of the Bands uh, in uh, Phyllis Wheatley Park. Back in the day, Spike Moss used to put together this big summertime festival, right? And so I would see Grand Central, I'd see Blight Time, I'd see all cohesion, you name it, all the bands would go there in battle. So um, it was right in my backyard because I grew up in the projects. That festival Tony is referring to was an extension of the Way Community Center in North Minneapolis, which had a music program led by the educator and activist Spike Moss. The Way was a safe space for Black youth in the neighborhood, and it was created in the aftermath of two summers of civil unrest in the 1960s, which destroyed businesses along the main corridors of the North Side. Not unlike the uprising that would happen 50 years later following the murder of George Floyd. I mean, that's when Broadway uh, Avenue just kind of burned down, you know what I mean? Because it was just so much civil unrest going on. And um, again, Spike having that, and it wasn't big. The way it was a small little, almost a cube that sat in the middle of Plymouth Avenue that, you know, he would allow these cats to come in and and rehearse and just to be off of the streets. And that's where a lot of people honed their crafts or woodshed, as we would say. Tony said that a place like The Way was essential to giving these young musicians a place to play especially given the combination of the destruction caused by the unrest and the institutional racism that was marginalizing musicians of color in this era. And again, it was just the atmosphere in which we grew up in, right? It was, uh, it was growing up in uh, a very small African-American community in a situation where creatively there was this abundance of talent and, and ideas and, and just their, their minds had to have been exploding back then, right? And uh, no avenue or outlet for that creativity. Um, radio stations were pretty vanilla. Well, they were vanilla, let's call it what it is, right? So um, the, the clubs were also, they weren't booking African-American groups, especially young kids coming up playing funk or rock and roll or whatever they were doing. You know, it was, 
it was straight rock and roll. It was, I mean, they couldn't even get it into anywhere to play. Hence, the venue of the way or Phyllis Wheatley Park and, and things of that nature, so they could actually play alive. The dynamic Tony is describing here is key to understanding how Minneapolis shaped this whole generation of young Black artists. This idea of pursuing creative freedom in oppressive circumstances and of creating your own world if the one that you're living in doesn't accept you. Well, it's easy to see how this all shaped Prince's worldview and influenced his creativity. Prince was a few years older than me and, and Andre and him were all a few years older than me. and. Um, so they were much more attuned to what was happening, right? I was just a young shorty running around, but understanding what they were going through and the battle that they were going through and that their parents were having to deal with. And um, so I think that's where a lot of his um, his pain came from. And, and just as, as a matter of factness, uh, as he was uh, uh, talking uh, or, or spitting lyrics, it was the time that they grew up and it was their reality, right? It was their truth. If I had a time machine, I would totally go back to the summer of 1975 and attend one of those Battle of the Band showcases on the north side. I mean, can you imagine? Prince and his bandmates Andre Simone and Morris Day playing in Grand Central, Jimmy Jam playing with his soul group Mind and Matter, Terry Lewis leading the ferocious horn-heavy funk band Flight Time, and Sonny T holding court with his experimental funk rock band The Family. Sonny was just a few years older than everyone else, and he was regarded as a mentor and a guiding light for this whole generation of talented young kids. You could have arguments with different people about who was the best guitar player, who was the best keyboard player, who was the best bass player, and everybody would have a different opinion. This is Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jimmy Jam. And if you said Sonny Thompson, everybody would just be, oh yeah, Sonny. Like, there, there was no more arguing. Like, if they're arguing, it would be like, how great he is. And everybody was scared of him, too. That was the other thing. Because he had such a stone face. He was so serious. And you'd always be like, man, don't mess with Sonny, man. He'll cut you, man. Prince always talked to me about Sonny. This is NPG guitarist Levi Caesar Jr. He says this guy named Sonny Thompson. Uh, he said, I looked up to Sonny when I was young. Because Sonny was, he was the, the musical genius in the neighborhood. So he taught Prince a lot of his musical knowledge when he was young. In early 1991, when he was getting ready to introduce the new power generation to the world, Prince took the unusual step of writing the press release himself. And much of what he wrote about was how much he admired Sonny. Also new in the band is Prince's musical idol, Sonny T, Prince wrote. Sonny served as a role model for, written as the number four, of course, Prince, growing up in North Minneapolis. Self-taught, Sonny can play or sing anything he hears. Soul, jazz, classical, anything. He wrote that? <laughs> yeah, he did. Prince wrote that? He did. Really? <laughs> oh, my God. 
I had no idea. I, I remember someone was telling me, uh, I, I went to a wedding for some people that used to work with Prince at Paisley Park. And they were telling me some stories about when I got the band. And they were saying how happy he was that I was there with him. And I had no idea, you know, it was that deep for him. You know, that, but, you know, we were always friends. Sonny and Prince met through the way when they were both still in high school. We were kids, you know, we'd be hanging out. Sometimes when he'd say, I'm going to have an orchestra and I'm going to sound like Billy Cobham and I'm going to do this. You know, we would always have these dreams. And he was staying with me for a while. Right. And we would just stay up all night making all kinds of noise at my mom's house and she'd get mad. And Sonny, you and Prince need to go to bed. (laughs) 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 That's so cute. We think in the morning. And we're listening to Quincy Jones records and everything, and we're just playing all night. At the time, Sonny's band, The Family, had become something of the house band at the way. And they were also saving up to get into the studio to cut a record. Sonny invited Prince to join the session, giving him his first taste of recording. Yeah, when we did um, Got to Be Something Here. Yeah. It's a song I wrote for the family. Yeah. Yeah, he was playing guitar and singing background on that. She had so much to show me. Another musician who vividly remembers being inspired by the family and who would end up joining Prince and Sonny in the NPG is the dancer and drummer Kirk Johnson. I played with Sonny as a youngin. I was playing percussion in, in the band The Family, which he... You took. were? Oh, yeah. I was oh, a percussionist. I didn't know that. And my sister sang. Oh. Yeah. It's funny because I would hang with my sister. She'd go over north to the way where everybody rehearsed, and I was always looking at the drummer. I was like, man, I want to play those drums so bad. He was my favorite drummer. His name was Joe Lewis. He influenced me in a lot of ways because I watched him all the time. And then I brought my little conga to rehearsal one time and started playing with them. They said, all right, you're in the band. And so, <laughs> so I got in the band as a percussionist at seven, eight years old, like seven, eight years old. Yeah, he was really he was a baby. I got a picture of him, about nine or ten years old. Wow. And he was in, in our band. I've been knowing Kirk forever. The more I talked to Prince's bandmates, the more I realized that literally half the musicians who would end up in the new power generation were all hanging out in close proximity to one another back in the 70s, attending concerts held outside the community centers and on the football fields of North Minneapolis. It was clear that this era was on Prince's mind when he formed the NPG, too. In fact, the very first song he wrote for the album that would become Diamonds and Pearls, and which was even considered at one point as a potential title for the album, was this nostalgic track called Schoolyard. 
It's been in Prince's vault until now. I was only 16 and her name was Carrie. She was the number one and girl I wanted to marry me. She was only 14, but she had the major body. Yeah, this girl was mean. caught my attention immediately. Prince is singing about a girl he dated named Carrie, and I remembered that name because he also talked about her in the pages of his unfinished memoir, The Beautiful Ones. In the book, he wrote, During these formative years of getting our band together and getting serious money-making gigs, there was one young woman who made more impact and left the impression still being drawn upon today. Her name was Carrie. Prince described her as tough, stylish, and cool. Who was Carrie? I kept thinking about her, and I was amazed that for all the scholarship and the work that's been done to detail Prince's life, I'd never seen anything else mentioned about her. I started digging and fell down what can only be described as a research rabbit hole that lasted for months, and to make a long story short, I found her here in Minneapolis. After speaking with her on the phone, she agreed to meet with me. Carrie was two years younger than Prince, and before the two of them ever met, she became close friends with his sister, Taika. Taika I met in elementary school uh, on the playground. And I have to think way back then, we was playing some type of a game, and we just kind of hit it off. And so I've been with her pretty much ever since, so until... We each got married and kind of drifted away, so. So I imagine you knew Prince from an early point then, too. Yes, uh, teenage years. What's your earliest memory of him? As far as with him, braiding his hair and those type of things. I would braid his hair probably once or twice a week. Uh, We walked a lot because he lived on 12th and Russell. And I lived on 25th and Penn, so sometimes he would walk me home. And then sometimes if he had to go to his father's house, we'd walk there. So did a lot of walking. So um, how long did you date? I would say roughly about maybe a year and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a very formative time in both your lives to spend that much time together. Yeah. Wow. What was he like at that age? Very into his music. I know he did play basketball, but I would never, I hadn't seen him play basketball, but when I'd go over, he'd have on his basketball 
clothes. So I know, you know, that he was playing basketball and just talking and those kind of things. Yeah. Carrie said that she and her friends hung out with all the guys in Grand Central. She even became godmother to Morris Day's first child, which meant that she saw that band play a lot as they were all coming of age. Well, some of them were schools in the gym, and that's where I actually met him. And um, some of them were actually clubs, you know, but yeah for the most part. And then we used to have like yearly Battle of the Bands type things. And uh, I believe at the Phyllis Wheatley, they used to have that where groups would come in and they would play and stuff. And so they would play there as well. So would you hang out at the way? I used to work there. You did? Yeah. I oh was, my gosh. Uh, I was a receptionist. It was part of my um, summer job. How old were you when you were doing that? I was young. Aww. <laughs> Eventually, it came time for me to play Carrie the song Schoolyard. I admit, I was nervous to play it for her because the song goes in a pretty explicitly sexual direction. I mean, this is Prince, after all, and he seems to be reflecting on some early formative experiences. But we also know that Prince's songs can be fictionalized and dramatized and more about creative expression than autobiographical storytelling. Still, I wondered what she would think. with you. That never happened. Well, I'm not happy about that, but that okay. that didn't happen. I don't remember no guy named Ace or not, and I have a very good memory. I was wondering if Ace is supposed to be Andre. I had never rode with them. Mm. We he didn't drive, I didn't drive. So I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know if he embellished all this to make the song good or whatever, but that did not happen. I didn't go to no party and smoke no weed with him or nothing like that because he didn't do drugs. Right. So I'm a little upset about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think in the beginning, the lines of, you know, talking about this girl I wanted to marry, that seems like it's coming from a real place. I, I think so, too. Yeah. So what was that like for you to, you know, have this experience dating this person in high school and then he goes on to become 
prince. I know. <laughs> the prince that we all know now. Yeah. Uh, we had sat down and talked about that one day. He had mentioned that he was going to make it with or without the group. And so looking back at that and seeing that he he reached his goals and beyond because he's an icon. So so that's kind of, you know, it's amazing. I, yeah. I can be proud of that. Leaving Carrie that day, I hope she really did feel proud about the role that she played in Young Prince's life. In his memoir, after reflecting on her, these words flowed from Prince's pen. What happens when two lovers stare at one another without speaking? So long the separation between them disappears and they become one. One what? Those were the final words he would write in those pages, and they were inspired by Carrie. I met up in the near north neighborhood of North Minneapolis, not far from the outskirts of downtown. Afterward, I ended up driving past many of the same outdoor fields where Grand Central and their peers used to play. Digging further into this history, I learned that those football fields were also where Tony Mosley and his future crewmates were first inspired to dance. I got with Damon Dixon. So Damon and I used to kind of have dance-offs at North Commons Park. They had parties on the weekend in North Minneapolis at this place called North Commons Park. Everybody, all the kids would go there and just, you know, they had a DJ plan and you'd just be dancing. After graduating from North High and after Tony enlisted and served in the Marines, he ended up reconnecting with Damon. Tony came to me. We were living in the same apartment complex. He's like, hey, you used to dance. You still dance? I was like, yeah. He said, we should go down to First Avenue and check out their dance contest. And I was like... Really? He said, yeah, man, they have it every week. So I, I roped him into going down to First Avenue, and uh, we ended up hitting a dance contest down there. And uh, that's kind of how we, how I really got started in the entertainment or industry or even got the bug. Me and Tony started a little group. It was just me and him. The name of the group was To Be Rude. Were the two? <laughs> yeah, the, the number two. And rude was spelled R-U-D-E, but the, the, the U was a tongue. To Be Rude started cleaning up at the dance contest. 
But pretty soon, a rival group emerged. It was a crew led by a star athlete and drummer from South Minneapolis, Kirk Johnson. My buddies from high school, me and Patrick and Scott, would always go down to First Avenue, just hang out. And then they started having these dance contests. And we was like, man, we could do that. So Damon and Tony was winning every week. Then we came and we started winning. This is how it happened. If you won the contest, you were able to be an extra in Purple Rain. So we won, you know, Tony and Damon had won, other guys had won. And then during the filming of the movie, all the downtime, we would all go to the restroom because the restroom was so big and we all end up, you know, hanging out and dancing together. Prince walks in while we were dancing and uh, doesn't say a word, just stands there and smiles. And we didn't stop. We you know we just kept, you know, with our little routines and just doing what we do. He sat there and watched us for a while and he left. And then his manager, Alan, came at the end of the day and said, here's a cassette of all the songs that are going to be featured in the movie. We want you guys to make up routines to them. And so we went home that night I went over to Tony's mom's house, moved all the furniture, and got busy. Thinking this was their big break into Prince's world, the dancers created routines for many of the songs from Purple Rain and gave it their all over several days of filming. When it came time for the movie to come out, however, they realized that only a small snippet of their dancing could be seen in the final cut of the film. But, you know, it was it was enough to say, hey, that's us right there, those five guys in the silhouette. That name, Purple Rain Dancer, stuck with us from everybody. And so we were going around the city as the Purple Rain Dancers. Tony, Damon, and Kirk kept dancing together, eventually renaming themselves Split Level and later TDK. They stayed on Prince's radar, too. They said he would invite them to perform at various parties and events over the years, and even hired them to appear in some of the videos for his side project, Madhouse. As with so many of the stories we've heard about this era, when it came time for Prince to start putting together the group that would become the NPG, he looked to his own hometown for talent, and Tony, Damon, and Kirk finally got that big break. When he was doing Graffiti Bridge... It's kind of when it first happened. We uh, were asked to, you know, be a part of that band during that time. I think originally it started out also as uh, Kirk coming on board to be a DJ, which was Alex. I don't think Kirk had ever spun a turntable in his life. But you know what? He was going to take that opportunity, and I can't be mad at him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you figure it out. We got a call, I think, the next day, and um, it was like, you know, the press wants all you guys to come on out. And... Uh, we came out, he discussed what he was trying to do, was getting ready to form a new band. Um, he wanted to call it the New Power Generation. He wanted to have us as, uh, as, as dancers in that band. It was after the movie that it kind of morphed into, well, we did Graffiti Bridge, now we're going to tour. You guys are in the band. This is what you're going to do. It just kind of morphed into it. <laughs> I mean, everything kind of happened organically around here. It wasn't like planned. and It was more like just his feel and spontaneousness. And we were just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Kirk had always been very talented, you know, and Tony was a writer, you know. He, he talked about writing uh, lyrics back when we were dancing. But once we got into the group, it was, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of room for a lot of things to go on. Well, on the nude tour with Prince in the summer of 1990, 
Tony had a pivotal interaction that would not only change his life, but would also influence the direction of the new music Prince was writing at the time. I think we were in France, and Prince was flying back and forth to the States to finish editing on Rabidi Bridge. And um, he came back, Levi was running a sound check, and uh, we happened to be just kind of grooving. We had pretty much ran through sound check, but I had a guitar, and Kirk was uh, on drums or something, and and we were doing Humpty Dance. We went into Humpty Dance, and uh, Prince walked in while we were doing that, and we didn't even know because he came through the back of the arena and came right up to the soundboard, and all of a sudden we just heard, uh, yeah, can we get to a regular sound check now? And we were like, oh, shoot, he caught us. Prince clearly liked what he heard. He asked to speak to Tony before the show. And I went to the dressing room and he just said, hey, I didn't know that. You know, I knew you played some guitar, but not a lot. But um, I didn't know you, you know, you did vocals and you write. Do you write raps too? I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, well, listen, it, during one of our uh, breaks, uh, my wardrobe changes. And what, can you guys go into Humpty Dance? You think you could perform it? And I was, you know. The North Sider in me was like, hell yeah, I'll knock that out. Yeah, I can do that. But I'm still going, man, don't you screw this up. I don't know if it was the very next show. It was one or two shows later. He said, let's go. Uh, you guys got it. And uh, he got off the stage, gave me the mic, and we rocked home to dance. And the uh, crowd went nuts. And I think that it was it from there. Then that's where everything started to build. Crazy, right? Much to Tony's surprise, as soon as the band returned from the nude tour, Prince started calling him into the studio at Paisley Park to contribute verses to his new songs. This is Things Have Got to Change, a hip-hop reimagining of the song Cream. Never in a million years did I think Prince would incorporate rap into his music. When he talked about it, you know, we had real conversations. Prince, I don't, you know, I don't know. A big chunk of your fans are not going to dig this at all. Then I'm going to have the hip-hop community who's not going to dig this at all because of some of your previous records, like the Black Album, for, for instance. He had negative, some negative comments about hip-hop and rap at the time. Riding in my Thunderbird on the freeway I turned on my radio to hear some music play I got a silly rapper talking silly shit The particular song that got Prince into hot water with the hip-hop community was Dead On It from the Black Album. Prince himself would actually try to clear the air about what this song meant to him in 1991, around the time Diamonds and Pearls was released. Speaking to Sky Magazine, he said, Well, first, I never said I didn't like rap. 
I just said the only good rappers were the ones who were dead on it. The ones who knew what they were talking about, he said. I didn't used to like all that braggadocio stuff. I'm bad, I'm this, I'm that. Anyway, everybody has the right to change their mind. So, you know, I wanted to do it, but I had caution about doing it. We all have egos. So I I knew that I was going to get backlash from both sides. And how was I going to be able to handle that? So I had to be ready for that negativity. Never mind the opportunity. Prince was grooming me for this. And he says, don't worry about that. I just need you to do you. And don't worry about the rest. Everything else will play itself out. Never saw it. Never felt like that. I just always felt like I was battling uphill to be um, accepted in both areas. Right. So it was a struggle. He would pull me in the office uh, lots of times because sometimes he would sense me during performances. Just, dude, you sound angry. You sound angry, you know, and and it was there was a lot of that going on. So he would dial me back quite a bit. He could see it when it was coming. He could sense it at sound checks or rehearsals or just in my demeanor. Uh, you know, not that I wear everything on my on my sleeves, but, you know, I looked at him as an outlet. Right. Uh, that if I had a concern, if I needed to talk, I could actually go talk to him. And uh, so um I I can't even express how grateful I was uh, for that. That is just such a huge burden to shoulder. I mean, you're taking on this role to try to, you know, build a bridge between Prince and the hip hop world on very shaky ground. From the right from the start. Right. And, um, you know, he said something to me one time. He said, listen, a lot of the artists that are out there right now uh, in the hip hop community, if I tap them and gave them an opportunity, they would jump on it in a heartbeat. They wouldn't even think about it. So you don't think about it. This is your role. This is your opportunity. This is your role. And I want you to shine in this role. So he just kept pushing me out more and more out front, giving me more and more opportunities. Uh, That's when we started to uh, do a lot of recording, right? We didn't know what we were recording for. We were just in the studio. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the studio. And, you know, I'm sitting there with my, my pen and pad, And he says, hey, what do you think about this track? Do you got something for this? If not, can you whip something up? And that kind of started our whole recording process, right? And, um, you know, he he would allow me to just get in and create. And where he took it was, you know, mind-blowing, to be honest with you. Tony's confident, breezy rapping is heard throughout Diamonds and Pearls. song in particular that was was a challenge it was willing and able the cadence uh, was hard to figure out how was i going to make this work and um when i think it, it eventually hit me he just he fell off the chair he loved it so it was just me having to work through the different styles and because it wasn't always going to be no hip-hop beat i was going to be rapping over all sorts of styles so i had to be ready for that 
right? And uh, he said, so you're being challenged in a way that a lot of these other cats aren't. They're making up their own beats. They're making up typical hip hop beats and they're, you know, their cadence is the same all the time. But I'm, I'm challenging you to think outside the box on some of these songs. Prince was also experimenting with rapping at this time, searching for his own authentic flow. Here he is on an early version of Live for Love before Tony added his verse. I got hit, but I could still complete the mission. I flash upon my own father long ago wishing before he died that I would always try, always try to live for love. Today I'm in another place, I have another face. My name has been changed to protect my new race. The choice you make is vital, so at the end of my recital I say, you got to live for love. I just thought that was so interesting to hear, you know, Prince experimenting with this really relaxed flow that sounds not that dissimilar to yours. Right, right, exactly. I would hear him on a lot of things like this, and um, he would just ask me what I thought. And, you know, and me being me, I'd say, well, man, you know, you stay on the instruments, and you keep singing the vocals, but you leave the L's to me, right? And he would just laugh. I said, just the, the delivery is different, right? The cadence is different. Even in the more laid-back style, it's just different. And um, I would joke with him a lot and be like, man, that's my job. You need to you know, do you let me do let me handle this right here? And he would joke all the time. We we laugh about it all the time. That playful competition between Prince and Tony can be heard especially well on the vault track "The Last Dance," a spin on the Diamonds and Pearls song "Jughead." Live for love without love you don't live And how you make it is based on what you're giving Back in back, only a few of us through the cracks The generation, the cards, the boys, the stack The gifts that to love each other is a must If we just trust and cut the bus Believe me, unity is a must Listen, everybody has a spread the word Everything is hazy when your vision's blurred I'm kicking reality In the streets of the city There's this mentality What goes around, comes around And get any clown who ain't down With the colors that you're sporting round Listen, G, you off the post that playful competition between Prince and Tony can be heard especially well on this vault track, The Last Dance, which was a precursor to the Diamonds and Pearls song, Jughead. This is the last dance. This, this is your last, is your last chance. chance. No, not really. We take our time with this one. <laughs> Tony, yeah. look at the Stellas in the Tony. house. Woo. Look at that Slimmy over there. Slimmy, Woo. Slimmy, gimme. Yeah, I think I'm gonna get with that one. Let's kick this groove first. Hold up. What you mean, hold up? I always take my time, boy. Roy. She was fine. She was all that. That's it. Come on, baby, dance with me. Come on, baby, take a chance with me. I'll do you real good. Ain't no other who could do the things that I would. So let's dance, understood? Jughead. Get up. No, no, baby. Get up. Tony. No further questions. Your witness. Bang, pow, zoom, and a whole nine. You ain't never seen another girl that's fine. Pete, what you thinking? So bad she good. Nigga, you're crazy. You ain't never seen a future that bright. All right, then, bed. Flow, step to it. But don't you let the bright lights... Wow, that is so crazy. Yeah, you're, you're bringing me way back. Now I'm just like going, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, dang. What was it like to be in the studio going back and forth with him like that? Uh, uh, stressful. 
<laughs> you know, he's just perfectionist and you just don't want to look silly. You know, you want to, you want to be a professional. You're in awe at the same time, right? So you're not trying to, you're not trying to mess up, but you're trying to look like you're ready for the moment. So um, a, a lot of times uh, I, I wasn't a studio rat. Uh, I did not like being in the studio. My thing is performing. I love to be on the stage. I love the, the instant feedback from the crowd. So the whole uh, recording and production process for me was boring. Right. Um, so uh, Prince used to joke uh, when I came in, he's all ready for this long session and I come in and it's one take and I'm out the door. So they just started calling me one take. Tony said that while Prince got to record his vocals in the studio alone, he would have Tony come in and cut his verses live in front of the whole band, which is why he worked so hard to get it down before he even stepped into that booth. I would get all my repetitions in uh, in the dance room. You know, where the, where's the mirror? And, you know, so that I could feel what I was doing. I was going through the motion. I was, yeah. And then when I felt it was right, boom, I was ready to go. He, just, he would always say, you ready? No, nah, I'm not ready yet. He said, all right, let me know when you're ready. Ping the studio when you're ready. I like that visual of you in front of the mirror, almost like a boxer backstage, like getting ready to go yeah. in the ring or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Recording the whole band live was a defining element of many of the songs on Diamonds and Pearls, and something Prince liked to bring up in this era while he was promoting the album. He saw it as a way to push back against the glossy production that had overtaken pop music and to distance himself from the computerized drum machines and synthesizers that he helped bring to the forefront in pioneering ways in the 80s. Speaking to Spin Magazine in 1991, Prince said, everybody else went out and got drum machines and computers, so I threw mine away. Yeah, I mean, that's partly true. This is Michael Bland. I mean, we were doing something very organic with the New Power Generation. It was like, it was real instruments. I uh, And Kirk Johnson... Uh, if there was electronic percussion, he was the one playing it. Like on Cream, that intro, the, the 808. That's Kurt in the room next door to me, you know. Like, that's not programming. That's not, it's, everything was in real time. We cut like Motown. Just, you know, like everybody at the same time, you know. And then Prince would go back and, you know, add whatever he wanted, you know, but you're hearing a band playing together. And that went out of style. It had gone out of style by the time Prince decided to return to it. It's like sometimes the freshest thing you can do is to go back. I love the way Michael said that. Sometimes the freshest thing you can do is go back. I think in a lot of ways, it captures what Prince was doing in this era, joining together his earliest musical influences with the most cutting-edge sounds, reaching back into his past to build his new band, and even turning that whole idea of gangster rap on its head with gangster glam, inspired by the old-timey gangsters depicted in Godfather and mixed up with the futuristic sci-fi of Barbarella. I hope today's episode brought you closer to Minneapolis, a city that Prince loved 
and that deeply inspired the earliest days of the new power generation. As Prince himself said, performing on stage at Glam Slam in early 1992 with his new band. If it ain't from Minneapolis, it ain't shit. Coming up next on the story of Diamonds and Pearls, we're going to celebrate Prince's vocal co-star in this era, Rosie Gaines, with help from the music legend's daughter, Latoya Gaines. I think just emotionally and mentally and and also talent-wise, they had a connection that they were able to just come up with hit after hit together. The story of Diamonds and Pearls is written, hosted, and executive produced by me, Andrea Swenson, in collaboration with NPG Records, Paisley Park Enterprises, Sony Music Entertainment, and Warner Records. Anna Weggel is our producer, and Corey Schreppel is our technical director. Special thank you to Zach Hockable, Giancarlo Siama, and Dwayne Tudal for all their support. The newly remastered expanded editions of Diamonds and Pearls are available to order now at prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for the official Prince podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite platform. Shovel it up, hot hat, uh-huh.